Uh, we are beginning chapter 2. I know those of you that are visiting this week, we are working through the book of Titus. And we're just going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, and this week we're in Titus chapter 2. We're beginning that. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn over there towards it. Uh, or if you're using your phone, tap over to it, whatever it takes. Um, what we're going to see in this passage today is that the grace of God is our, our primary motivation for a, a Christian life of, of godliness. Uh, or to say it another way, change to our lives comes from the inside out um, in our lives. I mean, we, we don't change our behavior so that God will then respond by changing our hearts and give our faith. But rather, when, when God changes our hearts and, and does give us faith, uh, when he redeems us, then our, our lives follow after that. Um, our lifestyles. Which is really just a way of saying, a way of living that affirms that someone uh, has indeed believed the gospel. And, and so keep in mind, though, that as we're looking at this text today, the, the great context of our passage today is in contrast to the people from 1 Timothy, verse 16, we were looking at before, those who had said, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. See, their lives doesn't, did not match what their profession of faith was. And so we're seeing this is coming after that in response to that. Uh, so let's, let's go to the word of God, Titus Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at the first six verses today. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, we want to learn what it is that accords with sound doctrine. Please give me faithfulness this morning and clarity to teach simply that this morning. And give us hearts that are willing to hear and to learn from your word today. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So as we read this passage, I imagine two things jumped out at you or crossed your mind right off the bat. First, uh, you hear that term submit and you're probably thinking, I wonder how that's going to play out. Uh, and we will spend a little bit of time on that later, but I mentioned that even here at the very beginning because I want you to understand even now that the focus of this passage is much broader than that one phrase. Um, that phrase that just pops out to us culturally. Uh, and so I, I want to warn you, don't get hung up on that one phrase. Second thing I think probably has come to mind as you have read this is you are wondering uh, if you are in the category of older men, uh, and older women, or if you're in the category of younger men and younger women, and some of you probably have a good idea of that, but uh, many of you are wondering which way that generally goes for you. And um, as we think about this, it goes generally with age, but it's really more about uh, maturity. You know, uh, many of you know that we as a church are often praying for gray heads, and by that we just mean old people who have experience and, and wisdom, because overwhelmingly we're a young church um, and, and still 
we're looking for that wisdom. And yet God has blessed us with, with many mature believers and still those who are young in the faith. And so we have both categories of these uh, without a doubt. So now, um, most of you are, are going to find that you do fall into both of those categories, actually. You know, think about the, the women and the men in this congregation <clears throat> who are older and more mature than you. <clears throat> and, and you can discern from reading a passage like this that they're good examples for you to learn from. In that situation, you're certainly the younger believer in this situation. However, uh, you're also going to find that there are those with less experience, less maturity, whom you are an example to um, as an older man or an older woman to that are spoken of here. And so uh, college students, don't assume that, that you're the younger here. Uh, don't assume that because there are many covenant children here in this congregation who are looking up to you, seeing how you live your life of faith that are uh, observing in that way. Uh, and even those of you in college, you, you realize that within that small context, those that are uh, seniors and juniors are having an influence on those that are freshmen and, uh, and in sophomore, particularly in your campus groups and your uh, Greek life or organizations like that. Uh, so let's get into the actual text here. Uh, before us, Titus 2, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 is this umbrella-like statement that goes over the whole aspect of it, over the rest of the section, in contrast to the false teacher, Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is a statement to, to Titus, who is an, an elder, who is a, a pastor in, in Crete, and, and he's telling him, Titus, you're to teach not just sound doctrine, but what accords with it. <clears throat> what is consistent with it. In this case, he's, he's to teach what actions, what way of life are consistent with the grace that we have received in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is a, a little bit like the fruit of the Spirit being applied to very specific roles in life. Um, you know, anything then said of, of older men here also applies to younger men as they're being held up as a, a model of, of Christian maturity. And, and the same goes for, for younger women in relation to older women here. And so then we see that, that Paul is instructing, instructing Titus with, with what he's supposed to teach older men in regards to what should be true of them as, as followers of Christ. And he starts there uh, with that phrase, sober-minded. Uh, simple, right? It's about drunkenness. Don't, don't look for escape from all of the realities of life at the bottom of a bottle. Drunkenness is, is not a characteristic of Christian maturity. And that's the idea of the, the next expectation of older men where it says they are to be dignified. Dignified meaning a, a, a manner of, of carrying yourself that is worthy of respect. And, uh, and then older men are, are then said to, to show themselves to be self-controlled. Um, that's a pretty significant quality. We we've saw that already when we were talking about elders. That was a major, uh, major requirement. We're also going to see that this is the advice given to, to younger women and younger men in this passage. Self-control here is meaning that, that men aren't quick to get angry or to, to make choices based on immediate gratification. Um, it's about being able to make wise decisions instead of rash, emotionally driven decisions. And finally, older men are called to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in, in steadfastness. Uh, that word sound here, we don't use it often. Uh, we tend to use a word more like solid in our, our culture, uh, 
You know, it's a, a solid and a trustworthy faith. The word uh, for love here is agape. That, that's carrying with it this idea of just a, a genuine, deeply committed love. And steadfastness here carries that idea of, of long-term consistency, something that we, we have started as a culture to not really value, but, but deep down I think we still do. You know, how encouraged are you when, when you see a couple that's been married 40 years and, and deeply love each other? How encouraging is that? Or, or someone who's been walking in the faith, you know, well for 60 years, how encouraging is that for you to see? Um, and, and that's what we hope to see in our lives as, as well. And then turns his attention here in the text to, uh, to uh, older women. And there is this continuity here that is clear by this phrase, likewise. He's, he's saying there's also some important qualities of life that, that Titus needs to teach uh, older women. And these are ways of life that are in harmony with sound doctrine. He then begins by saying that older women should be reverent in behavior. This has been explained uh, at some places as, as a behavior that's appropriate for the temple. Someplace nice like that. Someplace honorable. In, in essence, it's be respectable. Um, for instance, um, you know, I'll throw Amy Shanahan under the bus here. You know, I'd, I'd hate to be in Aggie, Aggieville uh, and to see Shanahan, Amy come out of some, some bar while you know, taking off her earrings about to get in fighting some, some woman, right? Um, that would not be honorable behavior. Uh, or, or some of you, you know, you're driving around and someone cuts you off, you know, to, to flip the bird to them. That would not be proper behavior for a Christian woman looking to honor her Savior, right? Uh, that wouldn't be in accord with the gospel that we believe. Uh, he then says that, that older women should not be slanderers. A slanderer is, is to slander someone is to, to say anything, particularly untrue, that is a damage to other people's reputation. You know, our words actually have power in that regard. You know, how you speak is an absolute example. Those of you that have children, you know, from, from time to time you hear these phrases come out of their mouths and you think, oh, that's a good one, but sometimes it's not so wonderful. Uh, and, and you think, where did they learn that? Only to realize, wow, that's a phrase I use all the time. Uh, I modeled that for them. <clears throat> I'm the bad influence. You know, how we <clears throat> speak about others will be an example to those younger in the faith, to be mindful that your words are, are building up rather than tearing down, particularly as you understand that people are listening to these words. Uh, older women are also said to not be slaves to much wine, which, uh, of course, ties his idea of self-control as well. You know, when people drink too much, they tend to lose self-control. They begin to uh, slander and act undignified and all these other things that we've already been warned against. <clears throat> and so then, the, the angle in this passage changes real quick there in verse 3. Uh, what we see is that part of what I, as a pastor, uh, am supposed to teach those of you who are older women in the faith is that you have a responsibility to be teaching those who are younger how to live this Christian life. You see that? Uh, verse 3. Teach what is good. These are... are these three words in the, in the Greek are actually just one single word. It's, it's kind of interesting because um, Paul completely made up this word. It doesn't exist in Greek writing any other place uh, at all. It's completely made up. We still do that today. You know, uh, you like to use the word chillax. That's not a real word, but we all understand it. It means to chill and relax. 
which I don't know the distinction between those two, but, but you get it. Uh, our, our daughter, you know, uh, Berkeley has made up her own words. She's taken the word hand and, and sanitizer and just squished them together so it's hand-sanitizer. Uh, and that makes perfect sense, right? Uh, and this text and this word that, that Paul has made up means to, to be a teacher of good things. And so then the instruction to these, these younger women is interlaced with those for older women precisely because the older women are not just teaching it, but they're supposed to be uh, modeling it as they are training younger women. This is, this is more about everyday life as you're walking through life, not, not so much a classroom-type setting. Um, and really what's, what's helpful, just to mention the Greek again, is that uh, what we see here is that this is ongoing teaching. It's not a one-time moment, teach this and be done, but it's a continuous ongoing teaching, an ongoing action in your life. And, and so let me ask you, you know, looking back on your, your life, uh, women in particular, can you think of ways and, and times that older women in the faith have, have trained you? Um, particularly just walking through life. I asked, I asked Laura this, this question this week, and I wasn't quite sure what the answer was going to be. I uh, <clears throat> found myself to be actually very encouraged because she listed off a number uh, of women that have been that for her, not in some structured mentorship. She couldn't point to a mentorship, but through conversations and from asking questions and in the moment and getting these real answers. I'll, I'll give you just one example. Uh, when Beckham was still very, very young, that's our son, Laura and he were at Costco, and, and after checking out, Laura gave him the change. This is, I guess, when you still got change. Um, and, and was teaching him to, to put it into this charity bucket. And at the moment, he, he wouldn't let go of it. He held on to the money, and he began to cry, and, and, and he was upset. And, and she just thought, he's, he's being greedy. Uh, and since she had had some conversations with a, a woman in our church at the time named Julie, um, that you know, she respected her, her view on, on many of these things and had been talking about parenting recently, uh, she actually called her right then on the phone and, and just told her, you know, how do I teach him not to be greedy? Here, I'm, I'm in this moment, and, and he's so upset. And, and Julie asked her, Laura, does he know what money is? Does he even understand the concept of money? She's like, well, no, he's two. He doesn't. And, and she helped her understand, well, then he's, he's not being greedy. Um, money is, is basically rocks to him. You know, he, he wants to collect them. This is not a hard issue that needs to be dealt with. He's just being a, a little boy collecting things. That's it. And there have been so many others who have been willing or more than willing to just um, step into her life when she's asking questions and when she's showing a desire to learn to, uh, to be able to speak into her life that way. So, you know, before we get into the details of teaching here, let me just ask you, how many of you wish that an older woman in the faith would teach you to live a godly life as a woman in Christ? I mean, how many of you would, would say that? I mean, just raise your hand. If you, you'd like to have an older woman teaching you. Okay. That's a lot of hands there. Some of you guys' hands. You don't, I didn't ask you. Uh, <clears throat> some of you guys would like an older woman to teach you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so we need more of this. I, I think there's this general uh, agreement, and, and we want to encourage it in absolutely any way we can. And, uh, and one way we want to encourage this is, is that uh, the, the women's ministry is doing this once a month women's ministry night thing. And it's all sorts of things, some of them fellowships, some of them teaching. Uh, and, and the thought was that in, in November it would be uh, Titus 2 night. Uh, more details on that later, but that's going to be on November 8th. Uh, and so, ladies, think about this. Plan to be there, practical wisdom, a place to kind of get this started in, in, in a way that, that you can start asking these questions. Um, 
So then let's, let's see what it is the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. Uh, first thing we see here, to love their husbands and children. Uh, this, this aspect is specific to wives, uh, and it's better understood in regards to teaching them how to love their husbands, how to love their children. And, uh, you know, I, I see this, and I can't even imagine why this would ever be a struggle. You know, in our house, uh, the kids and I are always absolutely adorable, agreeable, perfectly lovely. Um, but I guess sometimes, you know, Laura doesn't, doesn't love it when we rearrange the furniture to make forts or uh, suddenly have a craving for muffins and just destroy the kitchen, something like that. Uh, so, you know, then the, the question here, though, is, uh, you might have is, is what does it look like then to love husbands and to love your children well, right? Um, and that's the thing that I'm, I'm tempted to go into, but I'm not going to. I, I'm going to be vague and intentionally vague because I want you to understand what this is saying. It's, it's because the whole point of this passage you can see here is not that I tell you what that looks like, but that mature women in the faith show you and tell you what that looks like, how to do it. Are, uh, are you starting to see the way covenant community works and needs to be working here? Um, and, and so that's one of those things that if you need those, start seeking that, seeking that wisdom from some, some older women. Uh, what else, though? It says to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Uh, we've already seen that part of that is, has to do with alcohol. Um, what are the chances that this idea of self-control and alcohol would be mentioned right after establishing they have husbands and children, right? Only kidding. <clears throat> really, though... Uh, this here is not just wives. In fact, it's not just women. And how many times have we seen this over and over again that Christians are to be self-controlled? Self-control is just a huge part of the Christian life we see all over the scripture. Uh, the next thing we see here is that younger women are to learn to be pure. This is often related to being sexually pure, which, of course, um, is true for young men as well as young women. Uh, the teaching from the older women here would be in regards to uh, teaching them how to, to guard that, how to act wisely in that regard. Uh, and then the next text tells us they are to be able to teach them, uh, or they are to teach them to be working at home. Make sure you hear that carefully. It says to teach them to be working at home. Keep in mind, this does not prohibit women from working outside the home. Go read Proverbs 31 if you're confused about this, you know, for, for an example. But it, it really gives this, it, it does give this primary responsibility of managing the home to wives. Uh, one author put this very well. He said, uh, if a woman is competent, and she should be, in due time her industry will take her outside the home. The Bible does not teach that a woman's place is in the home. It requires that the home be her priority, but she is not at all limited to the home. And I, I, I know that you hear this, and it probably sounds very chauvinistic at first. Um, and, and yet you think about real life. You know, ask any children what happens when mother goes out of town and and they'll give you a beautiful example of everything just falling apart. Um, you know, and, and here's the thing, as you see this and you start to think that that sounds chauvinistic, you know, you might, you might, you know, if you're finding it to be like a, a degrading role, uh, more than likely that's because you have underestimated the importance of a well-run home in the life of a family. Um, this is antidotal, but I, I'll, I'll tell you anyway, when, when I was in, in elementary school, my, uh, my mom woke me up for school, and, and there was breakfast, and there were clean clothes hanging in my closet, and I was able to 
Uh, when I'd come home, she was there, and I was able to tell her about my day before we'd eat dinner together as a family. And as uh, many of you know, by sixth grade, my parents had divorced, and my, um, <clears throat> my dad lived somewhere else completely. And it was necessary that my mother began working long hours. Uh, school began at 8.50 in the morning, which is crazy late. Um, but that also meant that I woke up to an absolutely empty house. Didn't see my brothers who were in high school, didn't see uh, my mother, my dad wasn't there. And so it was an absolute empty house. And it was <clears throat> so difficult at this point to find uh, clean clothes, to find food at any point, breakfast or after school. Uh, no one ever asked me about my day anymore. And, and as I tell you this, I don't blame my mother any more than my father for the situation. She was doing what she thought she needed to do. But um, <clears throat> I, I do know this, that her working outside of the home wasn't the issue. The issue was that she quit working in the home and, and, and things very predictably fell apart. And I, I guess I, I tell you a story like that and remind you of this because I, I want you to hear this and it leads you to raise your view of the way that you value managing of, of, of the home. That, that whether you, you work only in the home or outside the home as well, that, that you care for your home and, and that you understand that this is a very important, very valuable responsibility that God has, has given you. Embrace it and, and learn to do it well. And, and then Paul continues on. We won't stay there too long. Paul continues on and he, and he encourages this, um, them teaching what it means to be kind. Oh, that's pretty straightforward, so we won't go into it much. Uh, and, and then he throws in this phrase that sticks out more than Travis Shanahan at a Justin Bieber concert. <laughs> he says, teach them to be submissive to their own husbands. Um, and that's not the only place in scripture that we see a statement like that. In fact, every single instance in the New Testament where a passage addresses the role of a wife uh, to her husband, we find this, this mandate for wives to submit. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5 all say the same thing. And um, if you're thinking, I've, I've seen that in action and I hate it, uh, you might be thinking when you hear that. Uh, and if that's the case, I, I'd submit to you that you have never, ever really seen that in action. You know, what you've seen is, is some sinful, abusive thing that has been labeled submission and you're rightly uh, right for hating it. <clears throat> it's uh, kind of like people in Kansas sometimes will tell me they don't like fajitas and, and they'll go on to say, you know, I've tried fajitas. I've been to this, you know, various restaurants in towns and ordered fajitas and I just don't like them. Well, you know, I submit this, that those are labeled fajitas, but they aren't really fajitas. Someone just threw crummy meat into a skillet and added a bell pepper and they're calling it fajitas, but I don't even begin to explain what fajitas really are. Um, that's, that's the kind of analogy that comes to mind. So, <laughs> few things to consider here. First, keep this in mind. These are important points here. First, this does not say women are to be submissive to men. It doesn't. It is specific of a wife to her husband. Second, the idea of submission is for all Christians, just the general idea of, of it, not just wives. Ephesians 5.21 tells, tells all Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In John 5.30, we learn that Jesus is submissive to uh, the Father. Uh, does that mean that Jesus is less capable? Does that mean that Jesus is less valuable or important than the Father? Not at all. Uh, in fact, to answer any other way would quickly fall into heresy. Um, they simply have different roles in the Trinity. 
Jesus also submitted to his earthly parents. Uh, is that because Jesus is inferior to his earthly parents? Of course not. Uh, the, word, the word submissive in, in the Greek means to voluntarily place oneself under another, which tells us two things about submission. First, um, keep in mind that you choose your husband. You choose your husband, and so, so choose a man you can willingly submit yourself to. You know, often uh, we've had these conversations with, with young women as they're considering marriage, they're dating someone, they're thinking through it, and, uh, you know, maybe this guy has a different theological perspective on something. Say, um, the guy's Lutheran or doesn't believe in infant baptism or, or something within the realm of evangelicalism but different than her views. And, 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 and you know, so long as this, this guy she's speaking of is an actual believer with actual faith in Christ, we, we generally advise them saying, you know, you, you've got to be willing to live with these views. Can, can you, not begrudgingly, but willingly um, be a member of a Lutheran church if that's where he leads you? Because now's the time to, to, to figure out that you're unwilling to do so. You're unwilling to submit to this man's lead. Uh, you know, before you choose to make him your husband. Women, when, you, when you're considering marriage, you know, this is such an important question to be asking. Is, is this a man that you will willingly submit yourself to? Very important question. The second thing uh, we learn about submission being, voluntarily, being voluntary is that submission is not the man's idea. And, and it is never the man's responsibility to enforce it. This is not a command for authoritarian leadership. Nowhere in scripture will you find, look everywhere you want, you will never ever find anything remotely close to husbands. See to it that your wives submit. It it is the wife's responsibility to seek to be submissive. See, submission in its best representation is a joyful, wholehearted following of the lead of someone that you trust. So men, do you, do you understand the flip side of this? You know, it's, it's kind of directed at women, but do you understand um, that this should put some weight on you? You know, the, the world is just lacking spiritually mature men. Um, not, not long ago, I was talking to someone, and, and he pointed out that, you know, there are a great deal more women who, who we know and have interacted with who fit the description of the type of woman I really hope my son will marry than there are guys that we have interacted with that you think, boy, that's the kind of guy I hope my daughter will marry. And, and that realization can be just incredibly sad. And so knowing that, that God has, has called... Uh, has called your wife or your future wife to submit to your leadership should make you mindful of this great responsibility that you've been given and, and the need for maturity to serve that role that you're called to very well. You know, she is submitting to you, but you had best be submitting to Christ. And, and now, now, right? Not someday, not when you're married, not later on, but now's the time to begin to develop that sort of character uh, to be able to lead your family well. And I, and I want to give you a little more info on this, uh, on, on this item uh, in this list, but uh, really we could spend a lot of time there. But in keeping with the focus of this passage, you just need to know that, that you know, ladies, as you think through this, there are so many more mature women who have walked through what this means and seen what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. Uh, and, and that's the kind of place that I really want to encourage you to, to find uh, wisdom. Our last segment of, of the passage this week then switches over to men, and it says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Just one thing. They got it easy, right? 
uh, almost makes you mad, right? Like all this stuff for women and then young men just be self-controlled. Um, I don't know if it's really that easy. Uh, that term likewise tells us that the expectations for, for younger men are very, very similar uh, to everything we've seen so far. Uh, again, though, you know, self-control is about being self-regulated rather than uh, self-unregulated, out of control. It's like this, you know, we used to, to float the Elk River down in, oh, I guess it's technically Missouri still, maybe Arkansas, uh, with high school students. And every so often, uh, we'd, we'd do this thing in the canoe that we'd call um, float by providence, meaning you take the oars out of the water and you just stick them in the boat and it's just, hey, let's see where this goes. Uh, no control. And it was kind of fun, but I can remember one time we, we crashed into this bank underneath a tree and this huge snake like slithered out, kind of hit the side of the boat. I thought it was going to go in the boat. It didn't go in the boat. Otherwise, I would have gone out the boat and that would have been a huge problem. Uh, <clears throat> but it was, it was one of those things that was, that was the end of the game. Like, this is no longer fun. Uh, there's snakes coming out of the trees. And self-control means that we put a, a little more effort into how we navigate the river of life you know you can't control where that river is going it's going wherever it's going but in most situations with uh, self-control we can keep our, our boat from crashing into the bank you know um, it's about wise decisions and actions that have the glory of God in mind rather than just the glory of this one moment in mind so how do we how do we apply this, right? How do we apply the general focus of this passage? Well, first, I, I hope the first thing you notice here is that this text calls both men and women to live their lives for more than just their own personal spiritual development. Uh, you see, rather, their wisdom from living in Christ is intended to benefit others who would follow after them. It's, it's fair to say that, uh, that men and women are all called to be disciple-making disciples. And I, I find it interesting how often in Scripture we see this image of, of fruit, right? Spiritual fruit. Uh, we are to bear fruit. And I, I love that as you start to think about fruit, you know, you realize that fruit is not an end in itself. But rather, uh, in the fruit of the tree are also the seeds for the purpose of multiplication, for the, for the benefit of future generations of fruit-bearing trees as well. And so the, the God-given fruit that, that God has sprung up in your life, that has come uh, and grown in your life, ought to, also ought to benefit future generations of Christians. And if it's not, then something needs to be changed. The second thing we, we see here is that the more mature Christians are expected to disciple the less mature Christians. One of the, the primary ways that you'll, you'll see this is the way that a, a mother mentors her daughter or a father mentors his son. But... That's not exclusive to that. It certainly includes a much broader idea within the church of just older women and older men uh, to younger. Um, so those of you who, who are more mature, and I know that's a scary thing to acknowledge at any point, right? You know, none of you feel mature. It's like that, that thing we do when you start looking for the adult in the room and you realize, I guess I'm the adult in the room. Um, and, and no one's expecting it ever to be perfect, but with maturity, uh, the maturity that you have learned, you ought to be ready and willing to teach those younger than you. It's time to, to step up and begin to do that. The third thing we see here is that younger Christians are expected uh, to look to more experienced, mature Christians as a model and a source of wisdom, which means uh, you must be, be teachable. And let me, let me ask you, or add this, that um, ask someone to teach you, okay? 
I understand in a perfect world it's not that way, that older people would just step in and begin to teach you, but one of the things we have learned in our current setup, the way this generation is working, is that um, the advice of those older is often not appreciated, not desired, and, and so it has made those that are older very hesitant in our day to dispense counsel uh, unless they have been asked for it specifically. And, and so let me encourage you to look around this room, um, consider who can help you navigate what the Christian life lived out well looks like, maybe in a certain area, maybe in general. Uh, you know, and, and if you want help with this, figuring out who can you interact with, by all means, talk to me, talk to Laura. You know, let Travis know, or Amy, we will do our best to find a good match uh, to put this in position for your life because we know that can be an awkward thing to start. Again, though, ask questions about practical things. You know, ask, you know, men, ask other men. You know, how, how can you love your wife well? You know, how can you respect your roommates when they seem to not be respecting you? You know, how, how can I get this newborn to go to sleep tonight? Uh, you'd be shocked how much wisdom you can gain on things, everyday things like that. You know, I, uh, questions like, you know, my son seems really greedy and he won't let go of his money. What should I do about that? These are the kind of questions you ask. You know, whatever, whatever it is that you need advice on, you know, seek these things, not just explicitly uh, spiritual things, but everyday things as well. Fourth, the, the goal of all this. Did you see the goal there in verse 5? Uh, with sound doctrine, uh, or, or rather, with living in accord with sound doctrine, as seen in verse 5, it says uh, that the word of God will not be reviled. Reviled means criticized in an insulting manner. And, and I know there's some irony as you think about this text, you know, so that even if, even if the things that we read here seem initially offensive, such as submitting to your own husbands or working at home, that, that seeing them in practice, really in practice, uh, really ought to be a way of, of commending the word of God to others. Um, you know, when a Christian husband loves his wife and respects her and cares for her, and when a, a Christian wife places herself in a um, submission to her husband because she trusts him in God's word enough to do so, it commends the word of God to, to others around us. And, and all that we see in this passage then is, is just this way of commending the word of God uh, to others. That... By, by, by showing them that, that when God has redeemed us in the gospel, he begins to change us, change us from our unselfish ways, uh, sorry, from our selfish ways to unselfish ways. And we begin to, to learn how to live in a way that says, not my glory, Lord, but your glory. And so then the, the fifth and last point of application is this, we're almost done, is this, that believing sound doctrine gives life to godliness. Um, you know, we're, we're not instantly perfect people. We won't be perfect people until Christ returns. Um, but discipleship is a process and a process that needs to be going on in our lives. Uh, you know, furthermore, just, just confessing. I think theology gets a bad name because the idea is confessing theology is not really going to change you. It doesn't make much difference, right? Um, and I'd agree with that. But, but you've got to understand, it doesn't, theology is not the problem. It's, it, it's a deeper thing, you know. It's about believing it at the core of, of your being that, that changes us as we begin to value things and pursue things that God has, has shown us in his word to be of value. You know, so don't, don't make little of, of biblical theology. Instead, dig deeper until you really trust what you know to be true from God's word about the world, about yourself, about God. Um, God who has loved his people so deeply that, um, he, that Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross to establish you as a member of his family. Um, so we, we pursue 
godliness, right? Things that accord with sound doctrine so that the word of God will not be reviled. And consequently, it's for our good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, some of what we've read here in your word today may, may push us from our comfort zone in a way that just doesn't feel right. Some of it challenges us to consider how we might model for um, and actively mentor those younger than us. And it may challenge us to look to those older or more mature in the faith to know how to bring our lives into accordance with your word. And may we all, men, women, older, younger, be humbled by your word this day in such a way that your word would not be reviled when others see the fruit of it in our lives. It's in the name of our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.